And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome to the show this morning. Of course, it's Monday. Yes, it's another week. But it's getting close to Christmas. This week and then next week. That's it. Uh, next, Not this Friday, but next Friday is the 22nd. So... It's Christmas, right? So two weeks to Christmas, we're almost there. So just hang in there. Uh, so far, markets have continued to do very well. We'll talk about that some today. Um, we'll also talk a little bit about an article I wrote on Friday. Um, talked about it with Adam uh, over the weekend on the Thoughtful Money podcast. Uh, talking about the American dream. You know, there's just uh, a a very interesting set of polls out uh, last week talking about well. Young Americans now think the American dream is dead. And of course, it's, a, it's, it's not really true, um, but it's the way that we have now focused on what the American dream is rather than what it really is. So we'll talk a little bit about that this morning as well. Um, so anyway, a lot of stuff to get into this week. Uh, tomorrow, so let's talk a little bit about the employment number on Friday. So the employment number on Friday came out a little bit better than expected, wasn't super strong. But underneath the surface, it was not a great report. A couple of reasons. One, a lot of seasonality to the actual December number, as is always the case. A good bit of government hiring. But a big chunk of that employment report on Friday was striking workers coming back to work. If you actually strip out all of the adjustments to that, the strikes, the government hiring, the seasonal adjustments, we only actually hired about 12,000 people. <laughs> it was not really a great report, but it was weak enough that you know, it gave the markets uh, you know, a, a kind of a, 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 some more hope, I guess, that the Federal Reserve will remain on hold. However, tomorrow is the inflation report, so we get CPI out tomorrow. Wednesday, the Federal Reserve will have, well, actually the Federal Reserve starts their two-day meeting tomorrow. They will have their, their conclusion of that meeting on Wednesday. So on Wednesday of this week, we will get the next kind of view from Jerome Powell as to what's going to happen with interest rates. Expectations are very high, and, and it's pretty much assured right now that the Fed will not do anything to rates. The question is going to be, what do they say, Right. So this is going to be the big question on Wednesday and for the markets going into Wednesday. The markets have been betting heavily that the Federal Reserve is not only on hold, but they're going to be talking about cutting rates as early as March. So if the Federal Reserve comes out on Wednesday, it says something a little bit more hawkish like, well, you know, we're still focused on inflation. We're not giving that fight up yet. Uh, no real need to, you know, we're, we're, we, our policy is restrictive enough. Okay, great. We don't need to hike rates. But there's no real reason to cut rates. Any type of language that is a bit more hawkish could put some pressure on the stock market, which is heavily betting really ever since October that the Fed is now done and that rate cuts are coming. So anything that the Federal, does, Federal Reserve does to push rates out, rate cuts out, uh, could disappoint the markets. And again, you know, the problem that we've had since October and the problem for the Fed, remember, and we've talked about this before in October, the Federal Reserve was like, hey, you know, we're still focused on this. But the market and the bond market in particular is doing our job for us because rates were going up. We were about 5% on the 10-year treasury. Um, the stock market was going down. Everybody was very bearish. 
And that was removing that, that consumer sentiment. In fact, consumer sentiment dipped in October. And I've got an article coming out on Friday talking about consumer sentiment. Not surprisingly, this rally that we've had in November has, has lifted consumer sentiment a good bit. Now, when consumers feel better about their financial situation, they go spend more money. That's inflationary. So what the, so what the market had done in October that had had the Fed step back and become a little bit more dovish on future rate hikes has now been completely reversed. Uh, financial conditions and the financial conditions index itself has actually risen very sharply and it's kind of actually breaking out to an upward trend at the moment that certainly is not what the Fed wants to see. So we could vary. So my, my point about this is, is, you know, I have no idea what the Fed is going to say on Wednesday, but I can't imagine them with this, with what's going on in the markets and particularly the bond market with a very sharp drop in yields. I cannot imagine them being really dovish on Wednesday. So there's a risk that we could see a bit of a correction uh, come you know, Tuesday or Wednesday uh, based on if, we, if that inflation number is too hot or particularly uh, you know, kind of more hawkish language from the Fed. That'll be the thing worth paying attention to. Okay, here's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Markets actually set a new high for this year. Now, that's pretty amazing. You know, it's been a really great run for markets this year. Uh, markets are up about 20% for the year. And that's great news. And here's the important part about this. You know, this is always about perspective. And we talk about this a good bit, um, you know, here on the show. It's talking about keeping things in perspective. And this really comes down, I had a, a big argument on Twitter <laughs> over the weekend over this comment as well. We are now 22 months as of Friday, 22 months of not making any gains in the markets. So for almost two years now, the market has had a zero rate of return. Now, this is important because if you were, if your financial plan, we've talked about this before, your financial plan says I need 6% a year. Well, you needed 6% in 2022. You didn't get that. You needed a 6% return again in 2023. You didn't get that because now we are just simply coming back to where we were. So we've had almost 22 months of a zero rate of return, which puts us 12% behind our goal, right? So, and this is an important point. We wrote about this just recently is that the market spends about a good bit of time making up previous losses. And this is historically as well. So again, this is, yes, this has been a very good year for markets. It started back in October. We're now back to where we were in March of 2022. So we have a good bit of work to do here still to get to the highs of 2022 uh, and actually start making some gains again. But this has been, again, we've talked about before how bifurcated of a market this has been. And this has been a real kind of a focus on just a handful of stocks uh, that have been driving the market this year. As you can see here, and this is, now this is the important part, this market is very overbought here. Um, we are at very high levels. In fact, we're at levels that have normally been associated with short-term market peaks. So again, we've had a very big run over the course of the last month. It's been a very large run. Markets are very extended here. And again, very overbought. So it, whatever, you know, whatever it is that triggers a bit of selling in the markets, could be fairly substantial here in the short term. Get a pullback to 43, 4400 would not be surprising. That'd be a normal correction within the markets. But just keeping a focus here that we've gone very far, very quickly. And if we take a look at a little bit shorter term picture here, 
just over the course of the last, you know, few, few really kind of the last two weeks, mid-November to now, the market's been trading at about a 50-point range over the course of this last, really, uh, again, really kind of since mid-November. So yes, even though we set a new high on Friday, it's really, it's not a significant new high. It was barely a new high. Uh, markets are looking to trade a little bit flat this morning. We'll see what happens. But again, we've not really gone much of anywhere very quickly. And that's because of this really overbought condition. Ever since markets got very overbought, as we wrote before, that was going to limit upside gains in the markets. And that's exactly what's happened. Yes, we've made some gains, but they've been very minor. And markets have really traded in a very tight range here. So again, markets are extended. Sentiment is very bullish right now. And we've been really kind of pushing the top of this move. So again, expect a bit of a correction here that would not be surprising that would give you a better opportunity to put some money to work. I know we've talked about this over the last week or so. Hey, this you know, correction's coming. It is coming. It could just take a little bit more time, particularly when you have a lot of momentum and a lot of bullish sentiment. What triggers that correction is going to be the important thing. I have no idea what that's going to be. But just be a little bit cautious here. Hold a little bit of extra cash. You're going to get a better opportunity to put money to work. Markets aren't going to run away and leave you. Just be a little bit patient here and you'll be rewarded for it. That's what you need to know before the bell this morning. When we come back, we'll get into a little bit more about the markets. We'll get into the American dream. A lot more this morning coming up on The Real Investment Show. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So welcome back to the show this morning. So <clears throat> again, uh, kind of a few things just to, uh, you know, kind of get ready to wrap up the year here. And again, just, you know, two weeks to Christmas. And then uh, the, the end of the year is going to come very quickly. And, and pretty much starting this week and, and, and moving into next week, volume is going to dry up dramatically in the markets as, you know, most traders, hedge funds, pension funds, et cetera, are going on vacation. <clears throat> so again, volatility will pick up, kind of the inmates run the asylum, and, and that's not uncommon. So again, the you know, another thing that happened on Friday was that was the end of the of the buyback blackout. Uh, or actually that's the end of the buyback period. The blackout started on Friday. So as corporations get ready to move into their earnings, um, their ability to buy back shares and for insiders to transact is going to become more limited. And so that just kind of removes a lot of that buying. And we, and we had record buybacks uh, since November. Um, and we talked about this in October when October, the market was selling off rather sharply. Um, we said one of the catalysts for the November rally would be the reopening of the buyback window, which is exactly what occurred. And we had a very, very strong, spat of buyout of buybacks by companies in fact it was one of the strongest runs on record of, of companies buying back their own shares and so with that window now closed um for the to, for the most part um you're going to see a little bit less support for the markets and again this is you know just something that we've gotten had to get used to ever since 2009 when buybacks became a primary driver in fact if you go back to 2009, do the calculation. We've done this on the show before. Um, 
you know, about 40% of the gain in the market has come from buybacks. So if you stripped out all the buybacks and then say, you know, we went back to like it was pre-1980 and there were no such thing as buybacks, um, the market would be around 3000 instead of 4500 So it's a very big contributor. In fact, in, uh, there's been a few years where corporate stock buybacks have made up almost 100% of the net purchases of the market. So, you know, it's just been a real driver here. So again, with that that window now closing, we're potentially going to see a little bit less support for the markets. Again, there's no guarantee of anything, right? Could the market just keep climbing higher through year end? Absolutely. Anything is certainly possible. But, you know, you know, kind of the risk reward, as we were saying, just kind of really isn't in your favor right now. So again, that you've got that uh, kind of sitting behind you. Again, as we, and, and kind of over the next couple of weeks, you're just going to have less trading. Um, again, a lot of hedge funds are extremely long right now. CTAs, these computerized trading, you know, kind of programs that just kind of robotically buy stuff, they are extremely long. They don't tend to stay that way for long. So if you get a reversal of any type of significant activity, you're going to get a correction. And, and so the, and this is the only thing we've just been warning you about. We're not, you know, uh, you know, I want to make sure that, you know, you're not mistaking what I'm saying by saying, you know, we're going to have a correction. I'm not talking about another 10% correction like we had from July to October. I'm just, you know, a couple of percent, maybe 2 3% correction, nothing major, uh, just a little bit of a, a, of a relaxation so that, A, you have a better entry point to put money to work on a risk-reward basis, but you need that little bit of a relaxation so the market can rally again. So you just, you know, just kind of get buyers and sellers offside when you go through these kind of what we call a buying stampede, and then you're going to have the reversal of that. And this is just the way the markets work, and, and we've talked about these buying and selling stampedes in the past. They tend to last you know, roughly 14 to 17 trading days on average, they can be a little bit longer. I mean, they can run 20, 25 days. We've seen long periods of buying stampedes. But generally, the, these buying stampedes are generally met ultimately with a selling stampede, which lasts about the same amount of time. <laughs> and so you kind of go through these phases. And again, sometimes they can be very long. Uh, we had a very long buying stampede that ran from basically March uh, after you know the whole uh, Silicon Valley Bank situation in March, we had a buying stampede that ran through July, uh, early July. So, you know, they can last. You know, you talk about April, May, June, I mean, three months uh, of trading. So you had a very long stampede and what was followed by that, right? August, September, October, you had a three-month sell-off in the market. So you had this buying stampede that was very long, followed by a selling stampede that was very long. And, and these tend to equate to each other as markets go through these cycles. And this is you know, this is the one thing that people mistake about the markets is just kind of understanding the dynamics of buying and selling pressure and how it works. You know, what goes up must come down and vice versa. And, and the things that, you know, we do wrong as investors on a repeated basis is that we get lulled into these senses of either complacency or panic, one of the two. But, you know, April, May, June, we get lulled into the sense of complacency. The market's up 17% for the year at that point. And we're like, hey, this is great. You know, just markets are doing fantastic, and they're just going to keep going up all the way through the year. Nothing's going to stop this train. Then we get to July, August, September, October. Markets are selling off. It's like, oh, my God, 
Nothing's going to stop this market from selling off. It's the end. You know, interest rates are going to 10%. The markets are going down to zero and just terrible. And everybody was super bearish. And then now you've had this rally. So, so again, this is just how markets work. Markets tend to get you sucked in at the worst possible time on one side or the other. You know, when, you, when you're feeling uber bullish, that's the time to think about taking some money off the table. Right? Capturing some of those gains. Put them away. When things are really, really bearish and you think things are going to do nothing but go down from here, it's time to put some of that money to work. You may not get the exact bottom. You may not get the exact top. That's not the important thing. Right? But if you can kind of go against your gut and do the contrarian thing, you know, if you, when you feel really terrible, that's the time to buy something. You know, when something feels really too good and you're, you're worried about missing upside, that's a good time to sell some stuff. And, and again, you know, this is a mistake that, uh, you know, I often get from people. They, you know, email me, they'll, they'll hear me talk about, you know, selling some stuff here or buying some stuff there. And like, okay, well, I sold everything in my portfolio. I'm all in cash. What do I do? Don't, don't be stupid, right? You don't have to make major changes. This is all about a game of inches, right? Football is about a game of inches. All I got to do is just keep making, you know, keep moving that ball down the field. Make a first down, keep moving the ball down the field. Make another first down, keep moving the ball down the field. And if I can do that, I'm eventually going to score. Right? It's a game of inches. The markets are the same way. Managing your money is a game of inches. I should write an article on this. Uh, but managing your money is a game of inches. It's small changes. Right? And if I make small tweaks here, I, I reduce some risk here. And when, and when I say, you know, take some profits, that doesn't mean, you know, if you're long, you know, Google or whatever, that doesn't mean sell everything. It just means move it back to your original target weight. So, again, if you, if you manage your portfolio and you risk size your positions, which if you're not risk sizing your positions, you're completely missing the boat. But... When you risk size your position, so you say, well, the maximum position I'm willing to take in any position in my portfolio is no more than 5% or 3%, whatever the number is. If that position becomes, say, you, say your risk size position is 3% of your portfolio and it becomes 4 or 5% of your portfolio, trim it back to 3. Right? If it gets underweight, right, it's supposed to be 3 or 4 or 5, whatever your number is, and it, and it, and it, becomes less than that because the market's selling off, then you bring it back up to weight. But that's why you do risk sizing your positions. Have a target weighted position size in your portfolio. It's like this is my this is how much risk I'm willing to put into this one position. And this is the thing that people don't do, right? They have a position in a portfolio that was, you know, two or three percent when they first bought it. It grows, does great. And there's tons of stocks like this throughout history, by the way. And it becomes 10, 15% of their portfolio because they never sell it. They just keep, oh, it's a great stock. It's just going to go up. And then it goes almost zero. And I can tell you this from a fact is that I had clients during 2008 that they'd inherited stock from a family member, you know, granddad, their father, whoever it was. It's like, oh, my, my granddad bought this stock, you know, bought this share of, of you know, Fifth Third Bank. Back when it first opened, and 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 it's a massive portion of their portfolio. It's it's you know 60, 70% of their entire portfolio. And I'm like, hey, you need to sell some of this stuff. 
you need to bring this back down to weight. Oh, I can't sell it. You know, my this is my granddaddy's stock. I can't sell it. And then the stock goes to three dollars during the financial crisis, wipes out their family net worth. Now, here's the question: If Grandpa Jimmy gave you a stock in his will, right? You inherited his stock. Did he want you to have the stock or did he want you to have the value of the wealth that was created to make your life better? And if you don't manage that wealth that he gave you, do you think he'd be disappointed in you? Falling in love with a position just because it's something that somebody gave to you is not what they did. They didn't they didn't love that stock and they didn't love you love it more than they love you. They wanted you to have that wealth that they were able to generate. Your job in an inheritance situation is to protect that wealth. And this is the one thing that I see people do a very terrible job of is protecting that wealth. They don't care about the stock. They care about the wealth and the opportunity they gave you. So manage that risk. So again, look at your portfolio. If you have things that are really out of balance, really out of tolerance, great time right now is a great time to move them back to weight not a great time to buy so if you have stuff that's super underweight your portfolio not a great time to buy it we'll get a correction here at some point i don't know when could be sometime this year could be next year but you're gonna get a better entry point to put that money to work but risk manage your portfolio it'll be fine okay interesting polls out last week on the death of the american dream for young people and it fired me up. I wrote an article. We'll talk about that when we come back from the break. Don't go away. The Real Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show this morning. So if you uh, listen to the Thoughtful Money podcast this weekend I did with Adam, you're going to get a little bit of a regurgitation of kind of my rant at the end of that. If you didn't make it that far into the video uh, with Adam, you, you missed the, the end of the rant. But if you did get it, you're going to get it again, unfortunately. So, uh, But I have some more stuff coming after this, so hang around for a minute. Um, but I, this was something that really bothered me over the weekend because, you know, I'm a serial entrepreneur. I've been building businesses ever since I got out of college. Uh, in fact, when I got out of college, um, I went overseas and I started a business doing, uh, you know, money management for high net worth investors. I've built health clubs. I've built fitness centers. I've done. I've just. I've done a lot of things uh, through my life. Um, uh, so, you know, through that process, you know, I. I had a lot of failures. I had uh, a lot of successes along the way. And, you know, I've always been, I've, I've never wanted to just be an employee of somebody else. I've done that too, right? Um, but that's not really my thing. My, my thing is, to, I, I love the creation process of building a business, doing the work, those type of things. And, and that's what I've, you know, my passion, that's what my, my joy has been in life, et cetera, no matter what it is. I'm always trying to learn something new. I'm, you know, working on a new venture now that, you know, hopefully I will be able to develop in the future. I'm trying to learn those ropes right now. So, you know, I'm always trying to learn new opportunities, um, you know, expand my skill set and, and try to create new, new avenues. But that's the beauty of capitalism, 
right? That's, you know, what you may not like this country for one reason or the other. You know, the politics certainly suck right now. Um, but this is the only envi- this is the only country where you can literally just start something from nothing and with the sheer will of determination, create something, right? It's just you have that freedom and that opportunity. And, and you know, it's interesting because people misconstrue that freedom for other things, right? Look, the political backdrop in this country, like I said, completely sucks right now. And so people associate that political dynamic with capitalism. Um, there's a, a very big problem that we have in this country. I mean, there's, you know, because of corporate stock buybacks and things that we have done in the financial system, the Federal Reserve, um, we've created this massive bifurcation between the top 10% of income earners and the bottom 90% of income earners in terms of who owns most of the wealth, right? But that's not capitalism. That's corporatism. Those are two different things. And so when I, you know, when I talk to my kids, and, and again, this is the reason this stuff gets me fired up. If I didn't, if my kids weren't of the age they are, I probably wouldn't care. I'd be like, this is your problem. But because my kids are just getting ready, I've got one about to go into college. I've got three in college that are close to graduate, you know, not close to graduating, but getting there very rapidly. And they're about to go out into the world. And they're going to go out into this world that is dominated by people that are sourpusses. <laughs> That's the only way to put it. I mean, they're just, you know, they're, they're pessimistic. They have a, a terrible view about the, the state of the U.S. You know, economy. They have this terrible view about the state of the world. And I don't disagree with the view because that's what they get off the social media. And everything they see on social media is they either see, you know, this one person over here that's become this influencer on social media, has got 5 million followers and is living this great dream, you know, whatever. And then on the other end, you've got everybody else that's, you know, just struggling to get by, complaining about housing prices and, and food prices and all those type of things. Definitely problems. Not, I'm not dismissing the problems that exist. They exist. But it has nothing to do with capitalism. And it has nothing to do with the achievement of the American dream. And, and so when I see these articles and I see these polls, it just bothers me because as a person who has, you know, done the time, so to speak, to build businesses and fail, you know, I, I, I know as maybe better than many about the ability to take advantage of capitalism. And it doesn't matter that the world is different today than it was in 1980. It's not. You know, the challenges when I started my first business are not any different than they are today. It just seems different because it's shoved in your face every day through social media and mainstream television and every website and podcast and everything else. It's just shoved in your face constantly. But in 1980, when I was first starting out, I couldn't afford to buy a house. Right? That's the thing. So let me let me share a couple of these polls with you real quick. And then, uh, you know, this article is on the website. And I encourage you, if you have young children, you know, share it with them. Talk with them about it. 
make sure they have the right view about what capitalism is. Most importantly, what the American dream is. This is, this is the big issue that is misconstrued the most about the American dream. But I wanted to show you this uh, chart. This was the, the first poll here is from Gallup, and this is the trend in positive views towards capitalism and socialism by generation. So the young, the young group is the millennials and Gen Zers, obviously a deteriorating position on capitalism and an improving position on socialism. Gen Xers have a very sharp improvement in their view towards socialism, uh, as well as boomers. Now, boomers and, and you know traditionalists, they still have a very positive view of capitalism at 68%, but definitely an increasing view of, of socialism. And that's sad. Socialism does not create wealth. Socialism does equalize the prosperity of everybody involved in socialism. Yes, everybody becomes much more equal at the lowest possible level. The rich are uber-rich, the top 1% own virtually everything. And yes, everybody else is equal. They're just equal at the bottom. That's not, that's not what you want. You're, you're, you're asking for something that you don't understand, and you're asking for something that will make you worse off, not better. But let's talk about the view of the great American dream, right? The American dream, home ownership. poll from the Wall Street Journal showed that 45% of people believe that the American dream does not exist anymore. Let me give you a little clue here real quick. The American dream is not home ownership. The American dream is not this idea of owning a house. The American dream is achieving, starting with nothing, right? You hear these stories about people that came to America, they had nothing but two nickels in their pocket, and they built these mass fortunes. The American dream is creating, having the freedom to create opportunity to grow and build wealth. Home ownership is the symbol of the achievement of that American dream. Throwing yourself into a 30-year debt structure is not the American dream. And this is where we've misconstrued it. Home ownership is not the American dream. It's building wealth. It's starting something that you're passionate about doing and creating opportunity, and that opportunity creates wealth. And there's, there's look, there's a long list of people that have done this. You know, Howard Schultz, Ken Lundgren, Oprah Winfrey. These All these people started with nothing and built fortunes. But look, don't, don't get me wrong. Capitalism is not perfect. It never was. It's not perfect. There are problems with capitalism. There's definitely problems with our economic system right now, mostly driven by what the, the Fed has done by injecting $43 trillion worth of liquidity into the financial system and you know keeping rates at zero for far too long. We have, have definitely bifurcated wealth among individuals. Certainly problems. But it doesn't mean that you can't go out and start something. People do it every day. Just if you don't believe me, go into social media and there's people out there on social media. You know, go take a look at Shopify as a good example or Etsy. And all these people that are sitting at home and they're creating cutting boards and selling them on Etsy and creating a business, right? That's capitalism. You may not you may not make 
$100 billion. You may not be the next Elon Musk, but it doesn't mean you can't go out and start a small business and create a very nice life for yourself. That's the American dream. You just have to you just have to take the steps to do that. And you know, I so in this article, there's 10 steps that I give, you know, that I lay out. And they're important. You know, be accountable for your current situation. If you don't like your situation, own it. Right? If you're massively in debt or you've got problems, they're your problems. You got yourself into it. It's not anybody else's responsibility. It's not anybody else's fault that you're in your situation. Trust me, I've been there. I lived out of my truck for three years trying to fix my situation because I got myself in trouble. But I had to be accountable for it. I didn't have anybody to bail me out. I didn't have the government giving me money. You know, I had to bail myself out. Be accountable for your situation. If you're going to start a business, you start a business as if your life depends on it. Because it does. You know... If you don't take control of that, if you don't take control of your life, you're not going to make progress. When we come back from the break, I'll run through these other eight real quick points. We'll get you going, and then uh, we'll wrap up the show. Don't go away. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So, 10 steps to take advantage of capitalism. It's really not hard. As we said, number one, be accountable for your situation. You got yourself into it. You got to get yourself out of it. Your life depends on it, literally. If you don't take control of your life, it'll take control of you, absolutely. Control your circumstances. You know, I tell I put I, you know I I tell my kids this once a week. <laughs> you know, put yourself in a position to control your outcomes. Don't let your position control you. And we often get ourselves in those situations. We we put ourselves in into places that we can't control those outcomes. And you know, it 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 gives you a feeling of helplessness. It happens to everybody um, all the time. It puts you in a position of helplessness, which is very depressing. So put yourself in positions where you can control outcomes and you'll do better. If you're going to start a business, you have to really want it. Um, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people that start businesses and the first time they hit a roadblock, they quit. If you're going to start a business, you've got to commit to it. You've got to really want it. Um, if you aren't committed, you're going to fail because you're going to hit roadblocks. You're going to fail. Um, you know, I failed more than once and, you know, I have to learn from my, I have to learn from my mistakes, get up, start all over again, right? Next day. You got to really want it. You got to be bold. If you're not bold about it and you're not taking it seriously, nobody else is going to take you seriously either. And, you know, that's just part of it. 
um, you know, find a guide. Uh, mentors are one of the best. I, 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 you know, I'm, you know, constantly talking to my kids about find people that you respect. And even if you have to go work for them for free, doesn't matter. You figure it out. But find people you respect, find people that are successful in whatever field you want to do. Let them mentor you and let, you know, listen, most importantly, to what they say. You may not agree with what they say, but they're obviously successful and you're not. So find out what they did that you're not doing and then adapt. You have to decide whether you're a renter and an owner. You know, if you're a renter, you can walk away from it. An employee is a renter. You're a renter if you're an employee. And that's not a bad thing. It's just you have to understand your position. If I'm a renter, I can just walk away from it. There's no consequence, right? I rent an apartment, I rent a house, you know, whatever it is. When my contract's up, I just walk out. Or in a lot of cases, I can walk out any time and I pay a month's worth of you know, penalty and I'm on down the road. I don't have any ownership in it. But when you start a business, if you want capitalism, you have to be an owner. You've got to be committed to it. You've got to have, you know, everything, you know, 110% has got to be into it. You've, you know, it's, you don't have, you know, once you get to the point that you don't have the option to walk away, your only choice is to succeed. Even if you fail along the way, you'll still succeed if you stay with it. You got to be willing to work. You know, uh, this is one of the challenges that, you know, my kids are going to face. In today's society, there's too much of this, uh, you know, I need personal time off. I need sick days. I need this vacation. I need that vacation. I need, you know, I need personal spaces, all this BS. If you want to, if you want to be successful, you got to be willing to work. Running a business is an 80 hour a week job minimum. I've spent, you know, I've been, <laughs> you know, anybody in this business in, in my office will tell you, you know, I'm answering emails, I'm doing whatever it is, 18 hours a day, right? And that's just what it takes to run a business. And and everybody in, in our office and everybody at RA Advisors are the same way. You talk to Danny, you talk to Richard, you talk to John Penn. These guys are working all the time. I email them at 10 or 11 o'clock at night. They, they're emailing me back. Got it. I'm on it. You know, take care of it. That's just what it takes to be successful. Got to be willing to work. It's not a nine to five job. If you want a nine to five job, be a renter. Go, go, go be a renter. And that's fine. There's, and there's, and don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with being an employee. Business owners can't be successful without employees. So not everybody can participate in capitalism because then we wouldn't have anybody to work for you, right? <laughs> you know, you, you got to have, there's got to be a percentage of the population that wants to be a renter. If you want to be an owner, right, you're going to separate yourself out into the few that are willing to take that risk, willing to take that opportunity, to take advantage of those reins. But that's capitalism. you got to be willing to take that risk. You know, one of the... One of the things that, you know, my kids get mad at me about is they bring, you know, they bring friends around or boyfriends or girlfriends, you know, whatever it is. And I'll pull them off to the side and I go, you like this person, do you? Yeah. I said, you know, in five years, what do you think they're going to be? Oh, uh, you know, they're, they're, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where you're going to be in five years. Your friends, the people that you associate with, the people you hang out with, take a look at them. Because that group of friends is where you're going to be in five years. 
So if you want to be somewhere better in five years, get a different group of friends. Hang out with people that are more successful than you. Hang out with people that are smarter than you. Hang out with people that are more driven than you. Because those people, those friends will lift you up. If your current friends aren't going anywhere, they're going to drag you down. And this is the biggest challenge, you know, and my kids get mad at me all the time because I'm like, you know, don't hang out with that person. They're not good for you, right? <laughs> they get really mad at me because they like that person. I get it, right? We like people. But pick your friends. Have acquaintances. You can be acquaintances with anybody, right? But your friends, that group, the ones you spend your time with, make sure they're going to lift you up and move you forward. Lastly, get off social media. If you if you you know if you're spending three four five hours a day on social media doing whatever, you're not going anywhere. You got to be working. I know now. First email I'm gonna get is oh yeah, but you know I use social media for my advertising and blah blah blah. That's it. okay, fine. Definitely, there's definitely a place for social media in business. We use social media in our business. You know we have Twitter, we've got YouTube, right? We do these things. It it, it is supportive of our business. But my time on social media, I'm just, you know, looking at social media or just, you know, playing around on social media. Eh, I don't do that. That stuff is often that I, I, you know, I tweet in the morning when I first come to work. And that's the last time I touch Twitter all day long. Because it's a time suck. It's okay to use social media for your business. That's work. That's part of your job. Using it just to sit around and waste an hour or two looking at posts and pictures of cats and dogs, not a good use of your time. <laughs> and if you're not running a business and you're spending three or four hours a day on social media, that's really a waste of your time. You know, that's just getting you off in that rabbit hole of, of you know, socialism is better than capitalism and I don't have any opportunities, you know, these type of things. The opportunity is there. You just have to go out and take advantage of it. And there's 10 steps to do it. American Dream, there's, there's more. I mean, I, get, I got a ton of emails over the weekend like, well, what about this and what about that? I mean, I could make this list 30, 30 items long, right? Easy. But these are 10 to start with, right? They'll get you going. But the most important thing is you just got to get going, right? You can't, you know, if you're using the excuse of, well, someday I'm going to do this. Someday we'll never get here. Tomorrow never gets here. Got to start today. Anyway, that's on the website. Uh, if you want to read it, it's all there for you. Uh, realinvestmentadvice.com. Real quick here. I thought this was a funny article in the Wall Street Journal uh, this morning talking about a moving company which touts young chiseled workers. So it's a moving company, right? So I'm hiring this moving company and they, they send over a bunch of strapping young guys, you know, to move my stuff. So man, I, look, I, that's, that's not a me thing, right? I'm, I'm not really into to young strapping chiseled young men, but you know, there might be some single women out there that might, you know, like to have some good looking men come move their furniture, right? Anyway, the Biden-appointed EEOC commissioners are taking a closer look at age-biased discrimination for this company. So I was just thinking about this. I was like, you know, well, if I went to a strip club, I probably wouldn't want a 70-year-old grandmother up on the stage. <laughs> just saying. 
you know, I think there are some businesses where age discrimination probably is valid, <laughs> maybe appropriate. <laughs> I mean, if I'm running a topless cleaning service, maybe, you know. Hey, by the way, these are capitalistic ideas. I'm just throwing out there for you. Uh, but no, I'm, it, just, it is just interesting because of all the things that we should be spending time on, I'm not sure this is a good use of it. I think we've got some bigger problems in the country right now, but I thought, this, anyway, so the, the storyline is the Equal Opportunity Commission sued Fresno, California-based Meathead Movers. Okay, so first of all, in the name, Meathead Movers, for violating age discrimination law by not hiring enough old workers. Now, now first of all, you know, they're a moving company. I don't know about you, but... You know, I'm almost 60 now, and I, I go to the gym every day, and you know, uh, working out. But I know a lot of guys my age that, you know, can't lift heavy heavy stuff, right? So if I'm a moving company, you know, there's there's I think there's some room in here to say, look, yes, I can discriminate you against you for you know not being able to physically do the work, right? That's the now the point. Commissioners voted seven times on age discrimination matters since the Democrats gained control in August compared with the three age-related matters earlier in the year. EOC Chairman Burroughs, whom Biden elevated, said she would vigorously enforce age discrimination laws as older workers regularly face age bias, stereotypes, and discrimination. I don't know. I think, you know, if I hired a bunch of four-year-olds to come work in my t-shirt factory, I might get in trouble for that. But, you know, I don't want to discriminate. Right. Got to have this balance. Anyway, just wrap up show day. All right. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow. Of course, uh, inflation day tomorrow. So we'll talk about what to expect from the next inflation report. Uh, and then, of course, the Fed kicks off its two days meeting. So we'll be back tomorrow morning. Uh, get you started. We'll see how the market does. Right now, implied market open is eh, flat, a little bit down. Uh, interest rates are a little bit up this morning ahead of that inflation report. So again, probably wouldn't expect a whole lot of action today. We'll see you tomorrow on the next show uh, right here on The Real Investment Advice.